Well, it is definitely that time of year where life feels full, amen? I think our, our own family, we have four soccer games, two Halloween parties this weekend, and, uh, um, and other stuff going on, right? So it's just that kind of season. And it's good to be reminded that God is with us, that He's present uh, in and amongst the mess and the busyness, and He gives us strength and guidance and endurance to persevere and make it through it all, uh, actually with a smile on our face and feeling like life is good. Um, we've begun a new series called a, a Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven, and we've been working our way through the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes were a list of carefully crafted sayings by Jesus. Uh, he put them out there for, so that his disciples could easily memorize them and, and that they actually had kind of a catchy impact. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is really the place where we find uh, the heart of Jesus' teaching. And so many scholars believe like this is the best of the best of the best that Jesus have to offer, even though there's many good stuff. It's kind of all concentrated in the first, or in the kind of front end of Matthew's Gospels, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And at the beginning of chapter 5, we find the Beatitudes. And Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen. Even Zach thinks so. Amen. Well, today we're going to concentrate on, on the sixth one. We've kind of been making our way through these statement by statement. We're going to concentrate on blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And there's so many different ways to hear the Beatitudes. And I've often wondered about this one, actually a lot this week. What am I going to say about being pure in heart? I mean, how do you hear it? Do you want to be pure? Do you want to be pure in heart? What does that even mean? I mean, is that like being naive? Is it being innocent, unblemished? Jesus, help us out here. We're going to take a look. And is being pure in heart even possible, especially in the world that we live in that seems kind of tainted by greed and lust and jealousy and bitterness and anger and darkness and sin? I mean, uh, we could go on and on, right? Well, the Beatitudes have been a source of encouragement and inspiration for generations upon generations of people ever since they were given by Jesus. But they've also been a source of kind of discouragement, even confusion. You know, when people read the Beatitudes, that list of things that we just went through, and you're kind of like, huh, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Is that like an entrance requirement to get into heaven, Jesus? But that's not their intended use. Instead, they're meant to connect everyday people like you and me people whose lives are busy and messy and far from storybook, they're meant to connect us with the powerful love and activity of God. Jesus himself stands in a long tradition of prophets, of prophets who are different than philosophers. Prophets, I know, maybe news to all of you, but prophets are different than philosophers. I mean, these are less about what you should be doing 
and what you have to aspire to, and more about what God is already doing on earth. They were delivered to people who were his disciples, many of them who had dropped what they were doing to follow Jesus and learn a new way of living. Life in God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, looks different from the rest of our society. And remember, God's changing the world one life at a time. You ever think about that? One life at a time. It's kind of slow. It's a process involved. I mean, every generation, actually, has to start over and choose whether or not they want to be citizens of heaven. And the goal has never been to force the rest of civilization to adopt Christ's way, his life, our culture. In fact, Jesus himself didn't even do that. The point has been to follow Jesus into his kingdom. Follow Jesus into his kingdom. That's a much easier job than trying to create the kingdom here on earth ourselves, because that's God's job. And while we follow Jesus, we invite and welcome others to follow him together with us. It's a life of freedom, a life of joy, a life of hope, a life of peace, contentment, purpose, even community with others. It's a life lived in the presence of God himself. So how do you do that? How does one begin to live in the kingdom? Well, the bad news is that we as people are a little slow on the uptake. But the good news is that despite our shortcomings, God's gracious, merciful, patient with us. Last week, Phil shared about the merciful. According to Jesus, the merciful are blessed. And in spite of what our world may think, being merciful isn't for the weak-minded or the soft-hearted. The merciful are blessed. Actually, the word's happy and in sync with God. And in God's world, the kingdom of heaven, the merciful will be shown mercy. But remember, this isn't about what we should do. You should be merciful. I mean, you should be, right? Or I should be, I'm not merciful enough. I should try harder to be merciful. No, this is more about what God is already doing. God's showing us mercy. And in the kingdom of heaven, it's like a giant feedback loop. Feedback loop. You know, because I've been shown mercy, I mean, that should do something to me. That should change me and my attitude. I've been shown mercy. I'm going to show mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy begets mercy for those living in the kingdom. All the Beatitudes kind of work like this. Actually, a following God kind of works like this. You know, the context in the Beatitudes is that some scholars see them as falling into general categories. The first three or four express dependence on God. You know, this is being poor in spirit. Yeah, I need help, Lord, help me. It's mourning. Life has been difficult. I've suffered lots of loss and grief. Yeah, God's going to comfort you. Um, We depend on God for our meekness. That's not weakness. It's actually being strong enough or strong enough to admit that we need help that we can be humble. Uh, We hunger and thirst for righteousness. The next three, like mercy and the one we're talking about this morning, being pure in heart. Next week, we're going to talk about peacemaking. Those are kind of working out of that dependence on God. And so you start to see that they're all kind of connected. 
You know, we associate righteous people with kind of being pompous and, um, and, and maybe a little prickly. But if the righteous people are also merciful people, that kind of changes things, doesn't it? I mean, these all start to stack on top of one another. I, 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 I can help comfort people who are mourning because of what I've experienced in God. I know that I don't have it all figured out, that I need to depend on Him. And so these become uh, kind of layers upon layers upon layers. And those who are blessed start to reflect this. It's the heart of God. And this morning we're going to talk about being pure in heart. They're the ones who will see God. And so in Jesus' world, he made these connections actually everywhere. For instance, Matthew chapter 9 shares an account of Jesus inviting the disciple Matthew to follow him and become his disciple. And I want to read it for you because we're going to see the Beatitudes at work. As Jesus went on from there, this is verse 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Matthew was a tax collector, probably even less popular than tax collectors today. He says to him, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Old Testament prophets. As I mentioned earlier, he stands in this prophetic tradition. Phil shared one of those passages last week. Uh, it comes from Micah, the prophet Micah. God's accusing the Israelites of just going through the motions. You know, you don't really love me. You're just checking off all the boxes that you think that I, you know, as long as I do all these things, then God's, then I love God. Just going through the motions. What does the Lord require of you? Micah 6, 8 inquires to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Jesus repeats to them. You see, these Pharisees, they mistakenly thought it was all about sacrifice. Grin and bear it, right? But sacrifice in terms of like religious ceremonies and rituals that they might, um, you know, these kind of outward displays of how holy or pure or righteous or religious or how much they loved God. And uh, that's righteousness expressed as kind of outward pious behavior. And in that scenario, purity is a transaction. You know, if God wants me to be pure, you know, or God does want me to be pure, and so if I keep up my end of the bargain here, God, and I stay pure, I don't do these things, and I do these things, then God will keep his end of the bargain, and he will bless me. Well, the Pharisees were an OCD bunch about lots of things, okay? They built up elaborate traditions and uh, rituals and laws to help keep them from transgressing what God had told them to do. And a lot of this had to do with their own personal purity. And uh, one of the things that they were nearly OCD about was washing hands. 
Okay, we don't normally associate washing hands with people in the, in the ancient world, um, but they didn't do it for hygiene purposes like we would do it today. They did it for religious purposes. They, they took baths, sacred baths. They washed their hands often because they, they didn't want to touch something that God had said was unclean because that would make them impure. And you don't always pay attention. I mean, well, you, they paid very close attention to, to that. But I mean, what if you accidentally touched something that was impure and you didn't know it? Then you were impure, you were unclean, and so they just incessantly washed their hands to make sure that they were pure. So imagine the Pharisees' shock to see a rabbi like Jesus who at this time was kind of a rising star in Judaism at that time. Jesus is eating in the home of a Roman collaborator. That's what tax collectors were. They were traitors. Traitors against the Jewish people. Traitors against God. And here's Jesus. You got some funny political ideas, Jesus. You're eating with a bunch of proud sinners. And so in their tradition, just eating with a person who wasn't pure would somehow taint you. It's a guilt by association. And I know we all judge the Pharisees as being kind of goofy and judgmental. Of course, we never do that, do we? Guilt by association, we never judge others. At least I don't. You're not supposed to laugh. Come on. But Jesus also had other habits that were very disturbing to the Pharisees. Uh, for instance, leprosy. Never been a real popular disease, has it? Well, in their day, they assumed like, hey, it was all passed on by time. We know now that it has to do with genetics and some people get it, some people don't. They thought it was all passed by touch. So if someone had leprosy, they would literally have to walk through, a, you know, if they were traveling through a crowd of people, they would have to shout unclean to let everybody know to clear away lest they come into contact even with their garment. It would make them impure, unclean. But Jesus didn't repel lepers. He touched them. He healed them. Jesus even talked to people who were Samaritans, which at that time were half Jewish, half Gentile. This was the worst of all things to people in that day and age. They were literally impure, polluted in their DNA and their family lines, and yet Jesus welcomed them into the kingdom, and Gentiles too. And so it raises a question as you read through the Gospels and you see this focus on purity that the Pharisees uh, seem to really have. Jesus, what makes a person pure or impure? Because this is at the heart of the conflict that Jesus has with his own religious leaders of the day. And in their mind, your purity or your lack of it was what affected your relationship with God the most. As I brought up a couple minutes ago, what do you think? What do you care about purity? You know, when it relates to gold, gasoline, maybe chocolate... I care about purity a lot, don't you? But what about my own 
personal purity. Have you ever, you ever thought about that? You know, people who are new to following Jesus, uh, people who are kind of new to church or didn't grow up in church, uh, the topic of purity is one of those that's kind of a head-scratcher. I mean, like, you probably didn't even know that that was a thing, did you? Purity. I mean, you've maybe seen people in the news, you know, upset. You know, there are Christians who are upset about, you know, they're boycotting Disney. What's all of that about? Well, sometimes it has to do with purity. For those who were raised in a church, especially a churched area of the United States where there was significant concentrations of Christians, read, not here in the Pacific Northwest, you've probably learned about what's pure and impure by osmosis. You know, inside the walls of the church, purity is often defined as sexual purity, or it's defined as any kind of interaction with what would be considered by other Christians to be, uh, I guess the word would be kind of worldly. That this was going to somehow have a corrupting influence upon you. But what are those? And does God really care? Well, and the short answer is yes, he does care. But the motivation behind it all is what's important to us this morning. What we're striving for is what matters most. Impurity for purity's sake is what the Pharisees were after. And at best, when we preserve pursue purity just on its own, you know, golden ideal, at best that leads to some really weird behavior, and at worst, it leads to avoiding people that we see as untouchables. You know, I was raised in a family full of Christians, and I would say many of those people in my immediate family, well, all the people in my immediate family, but many of the people in my extended family too, they had authentic, very attractive uh, faiths in God. I could say the same about my church where I grew up. You know, I know not everybody's perfect, but there was a concentration of people that are there who were super authentic, had attractive faiths in God. But I lived in a small rural Iowa town. And in places like that, it's really hard to be a hypocrite. And if you've grown up in a small town, you know what I mean. I mean, there, there are no secrets, ever. Everybody knows everything about everyone. And if you don't know, you just ask someone else and they'll tell you, right? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple. And uh, that has its own downsides, lots of them actually. Um, but if you were a person who wanted to follow Christ, there were definitely things that you did and you didn't do because of your faith. And you did it because you were obeying God. You did it because the reason behind it was to honor him. And like Romans 12, uh, chapter 12 tells us, we're offering our life as a living sacrifice to God. Our whole life is an act of worship glorifying him. And if you said one thing and did another thing in a place like where I grew up, well, everybody knew. So it kind of reinforced a need to be authentic. And it wasn't until I was in college where uh, this all kind of took on a different shape. You know, suddenly I was in places and in communities where everybody didn't know everybody or didn't know everything that went on. And so 
there was actually, it was actually incentivized to look a certain way and do a certain thing, even though you might not be doing that in your real life. And when it comes to purity, I encountered groups of Christians who were very passionate about holiness and purity. You know, these are people who took vows of chastity. They wore purity rings, signifying that they would keep their virginity until marriage. And I know some of you who didn't grow up in churches, you're like, what are you talking about? But if you did, you're nodding your head saying, yeah, that was a really big deal. Uh, People avoided certain places and situations, even people, because of the appearance that it had. Of course, I know no one does that now, right? We've got Instagram to perfectly polish our outward persona. Um, For several summers, I worked at a summer camp. All the staff at that um, summer camp had to sign a covenant that we would not watch R-rated films, wear revealing clothing, Of course, that never applied to me. Listen to explicit music. Lots of stuff. Because that wasn't holy. It would make you impure. And actually, there was was other good motivations behind it, but um, often it kind of boiled down to just purity for purity's sake. And the motivation is always protecting ourselves from the corrupting influence of society. Don't get me wrong, there is a corrupting influence in our society. And saying, you know, signing off on those things, even though I look back at that now and I kind of go, it was important for me at that juncture in my life to actually think about, like, especially media and what I consumed and what I allowed to come into my, you know, my brain and my mind. Because... That does have a profound shaping influence on us. But one thing that I kind of missed in that whole process is how deeply our body and our soul are connected. We're whole, integrated people. And sometimes when we, you know, make purity our focus, don't do this, don't do that, we kind of have this assumption that there's compartments in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds which aren't necessarily there. You know, we as human beings have a way of turning good and godly things into a competition. We have a way of making it all about me. We have a way of being hypocrites, completely missing the point, especially when it relates to this whole idea of purity. It piles on a bunch of shame and guilt when we miss the mark. You know, I had a little wrestling uh, match this week, um, not literally, but metaphorically, like, How do I preach on this? In the place where I grew up, I probably took purity too extreme, as I'm talking about Christians. In a place like Washington State, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure which message to give here, how to paint and describe what Jesus is talking about in being pure in heart. You know, if you look at the Bible, there's lots and lots of passages and instruction that's saying, hey, you should be pure. And then it will name a list of things, like stop doing this. And the Apostle Paul is often the one making these lists, but you can find them in James, you can find them in other uh, New Testament writers. They're saying, this is having an impact on your soul. Stop. Or this is sin. Stop. 
one of the most famous passages in this regard, when we're talking about purity and what, what the New Testament, what Jesus here, what life in his kingdom is about here, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll put it on the screen for you. This is the Apostle Paul writing a bunch of Christians in Thessalonica. And he said, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, people in the church. Brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then he says this, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, meaning someone in the church. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. That was a big gulp after that one, right? The key phrase, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. How do we do that? What's that even mean? You know, the Apostle Paul is making a general statement here, a timeless one. We're called to live a holy life. But you know, we can't make ourselves holy, can we? We can't make ourselves holy. We are made holy because of our relationship with a holy God. That's where it starts. Not with our own list of to-dos and to-don'ts that we tally up at the end of the day or the end of our life and say, oh, I'm in or I'm out of the kingdom of heaven. No, we're made holy because we have a relationship with a holy God. And he's continually transforming and remaking us. That word sanctify is very, very important. That's a process of becoming more and more like Jesus our intention and our like will and going along with that is extremely important but it's the holy spirit's power that allows us to make that turn that change we're made holy because of our relationship with a holy god so 2000 years later you know we've made purity and holiness i mean whenever this topic comes up it's primarily about sexuality and that's probably because there's so much sexual brokenness in our world. You know, God's design for sexuality and our expression was meant to be a blessing. But we've made it into something where there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of healing that's needed. There's a lot of restoration. But that's not all there is to living a holy life. And if you'll notice in that passage, the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are already doing. Meaning they're living this life that Paul has described. Being pure and living a holy life isn't something that we attain by following a list of do's and don'ts. That's what the Pharisees did in Jesus' time. 
And the Pharisees had this focus on outward and ritual acts. And they thought as long as we did this, they would please God, we would be blessed. It was like a formula. Jesus had a lot of harsh words for them. At one point he goes, are you so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters your mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of our person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. And so over and over, Jesus flips this idea of outward purity inward. Jesus keeps saying, it's in here. If your heart is impure, then you can observe all the religious rules you want. It won't bring you any closer to God. So what will? Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He didn't say, blessed are the pure who will see God. He added that little phrase, blessed are the pure in heart. The message translation puts it this way. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. So according to Jesus, being pure in heart isn't just an inner focus on our motives. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. From the inside out. Jesus is speaking of an integrity inside of us. An integrity of being. That our insides and our outsides match. Because our body and our soul are in fact connected. Our mind and our heart are connected. And that's where you begin to see all the layers within Jesus' teaching. This is a fundamental concept for us. You know, we're often motivated by our outward appearance, what everybody else thinks of us. But Jesus is saying, you know, that's an expression of what's already on the inside. So you can post whatever you want to Insta or Facebook or wherever. That's just a prettied up image. Who's the real you? Jesus says, let's focus on the real you, and then you don't have to worry about polishing up. It's just going to happen. You know, um, Jesus wants to heal our hearts. God wants to heal our hearts. Biblical scholar Gene Stassen, he writes a book called Kingdom Ethics. He says this about being pure in heart. The real split is not between our outer and inner selves, but between... God serving and idol serving. It's between giving aid to the poor in order to be noticed and respected by others and giving it as a service to God. The difference is between praying and fasting in order to be seen by others and praying and fasting as faithfulness towards God. The difference is between serving my desire for wealth and serving God's reign and justice. So what difference does this make? This is probably the beatitude that I most easily write off. Like, okay. But in fact, so much hinges upon it. Because it's talking about our our motivations. You know, serving the poor is always good. 
But what God wants for us is, why are you serving the poor? Is it to be noticed? Or is it to serve God? No matter what we do, whenever we talk about our faith, if the motivation is Christ, if the motivation is to bring glory to God, uh, if the motivation is, is our service to Him, that's where all of the power comes from. Willpower doesn't last that long. But when we do that, when we flip the starting point, so to speak, that's where the Holy Spirit vision reactor comes into play. God just transforms us, transforms our heart. The inside and the outside match. There's a power and a beauty and a freedom to living that way rather than constantly worrying about what everybody else thinks of me or trying to do or say the right thing. You know, or, whoa, what if I... You see the freedom there? Being pure in heart is about being free. About allowing God's Holy Spirit to unchain you from all this junk that we so easily collect in our lives. That's not to say that, I'm not saying purity isn't important or it doesn't matter. It matters a lot to God. But the way of getting there is what we're talking about. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, you are our goal. You're the one who heals our heart. You're the one who makes us pure. And instead of striving for things like this, to impress you or to be accepted by you, you instead free us to love you and free us to follow you, Lord. And that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect first. It means that you perfect us on the way. So help us, Lord. There are so many things in our world that actually are a corrupting influence on us. They hurt our soul. And, you know, there's a huge connection between our soul and our, you know, our mind, our emotions, our physical body, Lord, because that's the way you made us. And so we don't want to diminish the impact that that has on us and our lives. But we don't want to make it into an idol. We instead want to follow you and allow you to teach us and mold us and shape us about what's important. And that transformation on the inside to have integrity with what's going on on the outside, Lord, that's the starting point. Help us to get there. Because as human beings, we don't do that so well. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to be servants of you. Help us to do so. We pray this in your name.